Revelation chapter 3. plan is to finish the letter to Philadelphia today, and that'll leave us to get through the final church of Laodicea, uh, and then, like I said last week, then the rapture can come. And, no, then we'll go into chapter 4, and we'll take a little bit uh, faster pace uh, from that point onward. All right, so can someone uh, volunteer to read this letter to Philadelphia, verses 7 through 13? We'd like to read that this morning. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. All right, Matt, go ahead. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who is the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have left little power, and yet you have kept my word not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient, about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of, of the trial that is coming to the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. All right, thank you very much. So we're coming today, the primary, we're going to talk about the end of this letter, verses 11, 12, and 13. So we'll start with verse 11. Verse 11 starts about, starts off with Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming quickly, or I'm coming soon, uh, is how you could say that as well. We've seen the same sentiment before in these letters, uh, a couple other times Christ has mentioned this idea of him coming quickly or him coming soon. But in those contexts, it seemed to be more of a warning. Like if you don't change, if you don't repent, I'm coming soon. It's almost used as like a warning to them. But in this passage, this context, it doesn't seem to carry that at all. You don't catch that sentiment a bit. You catch this more in a positive sense. That this is a blessing that Christ is coming soon, something to look forward to, and that there should be an expectation of that return in our minds. So verse 11 says, Behold, I am coming quickly or soon. And then Jesus says, Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Hold fast to what you have. What is that idea of? holding fast to what you have, what do you think that is communicating? How would you say that in, in our words today? Hold tight. Hold tight. Stay faithful to what you're doing. Stay faithful to what you're doing. Yeah, it's both of those ideas. And we'll just kind of summarize, say, be faithfulness here. Jesus is saying you have shown, uh, you have a little strength, you're a smaller church, but you've been faithful, you've been obedient, you've been loyal to me. And he's saying, Keep on doing that. 
Hold fast to those things. Keep being faithful. Faithfulness is what God rewards all throughout Scripture. No one other than Jesus has lived a perfect life, and no church has been perfect in all that it does. But faithfulness communicates the idea of what is the trajectory of your life? What is your bent? Where are you headed? What is the pattern that you're setting? And what you find really both taught explicitly, but also in um, illustration form through people's lives, an example is God honors the pattern of life that is faithful. Right? God, God knows no one is going to be perfect. David was known as the man after God's own heart. But you say, well, man, how could that happen knowing what we know about what he did? Because the trajectory of his life was a man after God's own heart. And that's just one example. Faithfulness is what God honors. He honors the trend of a person's heart and of a church corporately that is moving towards him. So he's, he's honoring this church. Hold fast what you have. You have been, you have shown obedience. You have shown loyalty. You've shown faithfulness already. Just keep on that trajectory. And that, that's what he's going to honor. But it's really the, the last part of verse 11 that is interesting. Because he says, hold fast what you have uh, that no one may take or, your text says seize, right? Is that the ESV? Seize, that no one would seize your crown. Now, this is a very, honestly, a perplexing uh, statement that Jesus makes. Let's talk about this idea of a crown. This crown, uh, the Greek word is Stephanus, where we get our English name, Steph, uh, Stephen or Stephanie, you know, that kind of thing. Stephanos is the Greek word. This is the type of crown that would have been given in this day, the Greek day, would have been given to those people who were victors, uh, for instance, in the athletic games. There's different, kind, different times this idea of crown shows up in our New Testament. James 1.12, uh, it talks about the crown of life. 2 Timothy 4.8, it talks about the crown of righteousness. And 1 Peter 5.4, it talks about the crown of glory. Those three ideas here. You think of this word also. This is the word that's used, uh, for instance, when uh, Christ was being mocked and they put on his head a crown of thorns. It's that word, a Stephanus of thorns. Really as a mockery of his kingship of his victor, a victory, so to speak. So this is what this word is. If you want a, a modern illustration, this I don't know if you remember, but back in 2004, the Olympic Games were held in Greece. And part of what they did for the victors was give each of them, and you can see on this, I can't remember what this guy's name is, but you can see it pictured here, this crown, this laurel leaf. It's the Stephanos is what it's getting at. That's, that's the similar kind of thing as they would have done way back in Christ's day. And they were mimicking that for the Greek, uh, for the Olympic Games that were held in Greece in 2004. Now, there is basically two views about what Jesus means here when he says, lest anyone come and take your crown or, or seize your crown. Some say that the, those three ideas of life and righteousness and glory, crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of glory, 
that those are describing what the crown is. That what is promised is not some kind of tangible reward like a crown, but that the believer is promised life, righteousness, and glory. Okay, so what the crown is after is not some tangible thing, but it's really just talking about that when we are faithful, we are, we are given life, or we are given righteousness, or we are given glo- the glory of heaven. Okay, that all those three things talk about really one and the same. That's one view. Uh, there's another view that says that the crowns are rewards for those who are true believers. So there is a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, and a crown of glory that believers uh, that are mentioned here for, for believers. Now here in Revelation 3, again, we're left with this question when Jesus says, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Okay, we try to understand what, what the crown was. That's why I gave some of that background, how this word is used in the New Testament. But what is it that Christ is meaning here? Take away a crown? Is Jesus saying that because faithfulness and perseverance are the key proofs of true salvation, that if a person or a church fails to remain faithful, it means they were not truly saved. Meaning, if the crown of life, glory, and righteousness are just one and the same thing that are promised to true believers who persevere, who remain faithful to the end, well, if they don't persevere, is Jesus saying that crown, those things will be taken away. No life, no glory, no righteousness. Or, is Jesus saying here that they need to remain faithful so that they do not miss out on rewards in heaven? Okay? Any thoughts you want to contribute to this? In Revelation 4, when it talks about the 24 elders who cast their crowns salvation, then that wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't seem to follow that that's what that is talking about. It's the same you know, context even throughout. That it, it seems to be something that was given to them and that they can then give it back to God. See where Matt's talking? Look in chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. On the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeding lightnings and blah, blah, blah. And they... Uh, Cast their, their crown. Which verse is that particularly? Ten. Verse 10. You are worthy, or verse 10, sorry. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. Okay, so that, that's what he's pointing to. Okay, that's a good thought. Good thought. Other thoughts to throw in here? Yes, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there are other types of 
Okay. So, so I think it, it should be kind of parallel. Okay. Okay, good, good thoughts. Anybody else want to contribute anything to the discussion? Yeah, or it could prove that they were not truly saved in the first place. Right. Yeah. But it could be that they were faithful at first and then that kind of waned over the years. And then if that statement were true, that would, make, would seem that they would lose their salvation. Okay, okay. So Marshall's arguing for the second one then, right? Okay. So we have three voting for the second. Anybody want to start a debate? Yeah, Maritza? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I don't know the answer, but So expand upon that. Share your thoughts. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> in twenty-two twelve, it also has a similar phrase. That says, "Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done." So that may be a parallel passage. Talk about the reward would be the crown that he's bringing with him for those. Okay. Similar phrasing, so it would probably indicate the second. Okay. So 20, Revelation 22.12 could be brought into the picture too. Good. Anybody else? I'll admit, this is a bit perplexing for me. Because I see. I see merit on both sides of this. When a person is, when a person fails to remain faithful, it very well might mean they were never saved in the first place. But I also see the merit of the second one, of the actual rewards, rewards that believers get. We have other passages that, that speak to that same idea. I would tend to lean to the second as well. I would tend to lean, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold that a bit loosely, <laughs> like I mentioned this morning. Okay, I'm going to hold that opinion a bit loosely, uh, but I tend to see it as more uh, that second uh, aspect as, uh, uh, as well. Um, and even... Uh, the, the aspect that, that trips me up, though, is lest anyone take your crown. At first glance, that would seem to imply what? That I have it and someone's taking it away. So you think of that from the salvation standpoint, well, that wouldn't make sense because no one can take my salvation from me. That doesn't really make biblical sense. But yet at the same time, if you think about this in the fact of, that I'm, I'm given some reward as a believer, can someone take that reward from me? I don't know. I can't think of another passage that seems to really speak to that. So that's why this is perplexing. Gary? Uh, this is just a question. Could it be just the, the general church, the blessings of God for that church? 
crown of blessings I'm giving you that you as a church holds fast, as opposed to, you know, if if the church falls away, becomes weaker. I'm not talking about an individual, but just yeah. the church itself. Yeah. Yeah, that could be that could be a part of that too, yes. Michelle? Right. And the, we cast our That's what we're trying to figure out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think both of your questions are like the second one to me tells me they're already in heaven. Or she's saying that here they need to remain faithful so that they do not miss out on reward in heaven. So to me, that's telling me they're already there. Okay. I don't know. Did I read that wrong? No, I think you could read it that way. Okay. This is just my question. This is not a. Oh, okay. This is not inspired. Right. <laughs> But yeah, so if you look at the text again, uh, that no one may take your crown. It actually doesn't say when that crown would be taken. So is it talking about in heaven or is it talking about here on earth? I don't know. That's a, that's a good point. Glad to, do, glad, to be, glad to be muddied. Yes, Matt? So, so a couple of things. So, so one, in Second John uh, 1, it says, uh, watch yourselves so lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward mm-hmm. um, so that's one it, multiple rewards are different levels it seems to, to imply here uh, of, of rewards we get but then also if you, going back to I guess the original question or one of the other questions um, you know it, it's when do you get a crown mm-hmm. you know, is it kind of like you know at the end of the race where the crowns are sitting here and you're due it and yes. they say that was yours, but you don't get it now because you weren't, you didn't complete the race fully or, or whatever. Yeah. Not necessarily it's on your head and it's seized. It's that was, that had your name on it and now you don't get it. Yeah, I, th- I think that kind of gets to where I would lean. I think this, again, my inclination would think this is more rewards that believers receive than it is talking about salvation itself. And perhaps it's, and again, I'll hold this loosely, but perhaps Jesus is saying it's not necessarily that when we get to heaven, you know, there's going to be people who are going to be crown snatchers, you know, walking around and snatching everybody's crown. But maybe it's, maybe it's referring to somewhat like what Matt was describing, that because of a lack of faithfulness or disobedience or whatever, we will miss out on a certain reward that we could have had. Now, what, however that looks, whatever that means, because... The crowns that are mentioned, this, the, the Stephanus crown, this crown, 
in the context that was given at the end of a race or at the end of a victory. So we put that connotation into our Christian life. It would seem to imply, going back to what Laura was saying, this is something at the end of our Christian race uh, when we get to heaven. Caleb? I also noticed on, uh, going back to verse 10, where it says, because thou hast kept the word of thy patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. Yep. And then verse 11 says, hold that fast which thou hast. So therefore, that might mean the word of thy patience. And I, that might mean keeping, keeping faithful to the word of thy patience. That no man can take the word of your patience, which in turn will lead to um, probably crowns in heaven or, or eternal value in heaven. Yeah, that faithfulness definitely is there. Yeah, Emily? Yeah, it reminds me with uh, Psalm 88, Psalm of Haman, where it's just a bleak and dire psalm that during that time, even though that wasn't his whole life, because he went on to write other psalms that were joyous, but it's when you let the weight of this world drown out the weight of God's glory. And when you live your life in that, you drown out the faithfulness. And so... Like, I'm not sure about the actual crown, but the idea of when we operate out of God's glory, there are things that we do that we wouldn't do otherwise if we operated out of the weight of this world. Yeah, yeah, good. Yes? So, 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's already there. But then he says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but also, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Right. So it's a crown of righteousness for those that love his appearing. That would seem to be what's implied there, yeah. And then, then going back to Revelation 3, he's talking about, behold, I'm coming quickly, and, mm-hmm. and he's So is he talking, is that that crown that he's talking about there that you need to be careful, you need to be watchful because I'm coming. And if you're not careful and if you're not watching, you might not get this crown. Is that being implied at all? You know, it could be, <clears throat> but it's just not told us <laughs> in the text. It, but that's a... Well, that's where the, those two views come into play. One says, yes, it's not a crown, it's righteousness, eternal righteousness. Mm-hmm. The other one says, no, it's a crown for those who are righteous. Deb? It seems like many of us are, are pointing toward the factor of consistency. You know, sometimes when someone says, well done, you're doing good, how do we view the from there on? Sometimes yep. we rest on our laurels. Sometimes we're like, oh, we got the bad boy, and we, we're we not as persistent. We're not consistent. Mm-hmm. And um, even if somebody doesn't say bad boy, sometimes we do start slacking. So this is, you know, and, and you've said, too, that it's being read by the other churches. So it's like you never can slack. You just need to keep on keeping on and right. keep faithful. You're getting the, the perplexity of this, of this statement, though, right? I think we can all get that. And again, it's, you have done very well with bringing other scriptures that could 
bring to bear on this text, which is outstanding. That's what you do. That's biblical interpretation. You try as best you can to let the scripture interpret scripture. That's the, that's the first line uh, of biblical interpretation. You've done well with that. There's still some questions, though, and some perplexity, and that's okay. That's part of this revelation why people want, some people steer away from revelation. Well, there's a lot of unanswered questions, and what does this mean, what does this mean? It's okay to not know all the answers. But I think what we can all agree on, what seems to be clear, is that first idea of hold fast. The faithfulness is what Christ is really pushing uh, in this church and for all believers. And that's what, I think that, whether, whether or not we can answer what crown is it or what does it mean, we all can know I need to be faithful because that's what, that's what God honors. And whatever happens after that is up to God. But I just need to be faithful. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to call it quits there, <laughs> okay, on that center for that verse. Let's go on. Verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12 says, He who overcomes, okay, remember this is talking about he who overcomes is a true believer, so all true believers He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. We'll we'll take that first part first. So make him a pillar. What do you think of when you read that, besides the picture that I put up on the screen? What do you think of a pillar? What does that communicate? I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Okay, support. Strength. Strength. May? No, I was just saying something that holds you up. Okay, something that holds you up. Something. Steady? Yeah, all those are what is, what is meant to be pictured. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, is this saying that when we get to heaven, God is literally going to make us a temple? Whoops. I'm going to grab a, a napkin or something. Does this literally mean that God is going to make us physical temples or physical pillars that each one of us is going to be holding up a piece of the temple? No. Okay, so this is not a literal thing. This is a metaphor, a picture of something. When God says, I'm going to make, you, make him a pillar, we should seek to understand that this is God giving stability and security in his own presence. Remember the temple or the tabernacle before it, that was the place where God resided. When people, in a special way, we know God is everywhere, I get that. But the tabernacle and the temple, particularly even the holy of holies in those places, that was where God was. When we get to heaven, ultimately heaven is the place where God is. And God is communicating here that when you get to heaven, to him who overcomes, so that you true believers, you'll be stable, there's security, and there is permanence. Now think of that in the context of this church of Philadelphia. Do you remember a couple of weeks back when I was describing the city and some of the background of the city? This city was not known for its stability because it was built near a volcano, had a major earthquake that ravaged, destroyed the city, and they are living under constant instability. And I think Christ is bringing that out, or contrasting with that at least, and saying, specific to this church, using that context, but this is true for all believers, 
there is this blessing of stability and security and permanence that will be given to you uh, in heaven. Now he goes on, and he talks about these names that are given. Verse 12. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Okay, so we have these three things, he says, that will, I will write on him. Uh, these three names. First one is the name of my God. Now think of all the various names of God in the Bible. Okay, let's throw out a, a few. What are some names of God that you know from the scripture? Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. Elohim. Elohim. Jehovah. Jehovah. I am. I am. And all the variations of Jehovah, <laughs> right? <laughs> Lots of them. Adonai. Lord Sabaoth. You know, all these different names. So when Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God, we're not told which one, okay? Or if there is one specific that he's thinking of, it could be the name Yahweh. That was really the, the primary name that we know in the scripture uh, of, of the identity of God. But all Jesus says here is that the name of God will be written on true believers. Now, what does that communicate? When you write your name on something, what does that communicate? Possession. Possession. Belonging. Belonging. Ownership. And that's what Christ is communicating here. God's name will be written on you. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not God's now. But again, there's this permanence. There's this sense of security, stability, that we are in heaven no one can take that ownership away. It's forever secured uh, in, uh, in God's presence. So Jesus is communicating here the sense of ownership by God, and that really is a comforting thing. For elsewhere, the Bible says God knows those who are his. We're going to call that ownership. The second name, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, uh, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now here we have the first reference to Jerusalem by name in this book. The other two come at the very end, chapter 21, verse 2, and chapter 21, verse 12. This is the heavenly city coming down from heaven for eternity. This is really the ultimate home uh, for believers. This new, the new heaven, new earth, and this new Jerusalem which comes down. This massive city, which we'll get there in a little bit, but it's like 1,500 miles cubed in our in our measurements-ish, give or take a foot or two. But this is this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. What do you think that this is communicating when he says, I'll write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, on him? Residency. Residency. Citizenship. That's the word that I, that I wrote down. Residency would be good too. But citizenship, I am an eternal citizen of heaven. And I have the name of Jerusalem <clears throat> stamped on me. Whatever that would look like, whatever that would mean. But I am an eternal citizen of heaven. Now, again, we're citizens of heaven now, right? Paul said that. But that's, that is given to us. And then the last one, my new name, Jesus, is, and my new name. That's the last thing 
in verse 12. Now, this is an interesting thing, too. Jesus has many names as the second person of the Trinity, and there is another name that he will bear at his second coming before his millennial kingdom. If you look at chapter 19, if you flip over a few pages, chapter 19, and look in verse 12, This is his coming just before the millennial kingdom, verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire on his head were many crowns. He had a, I don't know which word for crown that is, by the way, in case you were wanting to ask. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now that's an interesting thing. Jesus will come when he comes again. He will have a name written on him that no one knows except himself. Some have speculated it's perhaps that name that will be given. I'm not convinced of that just because of how this is worded, that he had a name. When he comes again, he will have a name that no one knew except himself. So I'm not convinced of that. Again, I'll give some leeway in that. But anyway, we're not told exactly what name uh, Jesus would be uh, uh, implying here. Um, But this would represent the character of Christ to us. Christ's own name is who he is. We're going to call this full sanctification. 1 John 3, 2 says that when he comes, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think I would link that verse with this concept here. Our salvation will be complete when we get to heaven. We'll be finally sanctified, rid of all sin, and as much like Christ as we will ever be. Okay, so I'm taking these three names as signifying ownership, citizenship, and full sanctification. Now, an interesting side note, that in my study of this, my reading about this, I saw an author bring out, and I'll bring it up, whether it can hold a lot of water, I don't know, but it sure was an interesting thing. This idea of uh, the pillar, that were pillars, and I showed you that picture before apparently way back in that day there could have been and would would have been some people who would have made some kind of donations to various temples of the false gods and as a result of that uh, donation apparently and again i just saw this in one uh one resource i haven't really seen it all around necessarily but it very well could be uh, there as a result or as a reward for giving that donation, on that pillar, there would be, uh, on that given, a recognition of that person's name who made that donation, where he was from, and who he was, or something along that line. And this resource that I was reading correlated that with this, that Christ has given himself for us, and that God's new name, or God's name, will be given to us. We're citizens of his kingdom. That will be written on us as pillars. And Christ's character. Okay, now that's very loose. And again, that was just in one resource, but I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. Nonetheless. Okay, so take that with a grain of salt or with a salt shaker, whichever one you prefer. Uh, But I thought it was an interesting thing uh, to pull out. So the names that will be given to us. Again, all of these communicate stability, finality, security, all that. Yes? I I had the thought of when you shook a package, 
all those, it, it's like your address, the name mm -hmm. that it's going to, and so it, it's like because we are his possession, it, it, it gives us that same kind of, okay, this is definitely who you are. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. All right, then that leaves us with verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. This letter closes with this admonition for all who have ears to hear. That's all of us. I've mentioned this before, but this would be why it is important to not only think of these things in terms of this particular church, but also in terms of every church in every age. The initial or the immediate promises made here are to this church at Philadelphia and these believers, but the broader application is to these seven churches who are in Asia Minor who would have read these seven letters. And frankly, I am I'm unsure as to how many, if any, of these seven churches written here are even still in existence. I just don't know. There may be some who do know. I'm not one of those. But the broader application then is for all believers everywhere in each local assembly. That we, 2,000 years after this was written, we who have ears to hear, we need to hear. So we can take what Christ has, has given to this church at Philadelphia. And though there's still some things that we just don't know, hard to understand, we should take what we have learned and seek to understand more and value that and apply that even to our lives. Okay, so let me give quickly then three lessons to glean from Philadelphia. I don't think I've done this with the other churches. That's to my own detriment, uh, but I'll do it with Philadelphia. Three lessons. One, faithfulness is what God desires. Right? We talked about that. We know that. That's mentioned here. Hold fast. It's mentioned elsewhere. It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Faithfulness is what God desires uh, in his people. This church of Philadelphia was small in number but faithful. And there is a common fallacy and misperception in churches that if a church is not large, it must not be blessed by God. But that we ought to guard ourselves against that thought. That's not a biblically accurate uh, statement to, to make. Okay, but God does desire faithfulness. Number two, God is perfectly just and will vindicate all wrongdoing against his church in his timing. You say, where do you get that? From his statement in verse 9, those of the synagogue of Satan who said they were Jews but were not, they, there's animosity. That really is true in pretty much every one of these churches, whether it was unbelieving Jews uh, or just the Gentile world, the, the uh, false temple worshipers, whatever it was, who are the enemies who are oppressing God will vindicate his people in his timing. And sometimes that timing doesn't match with what we think it ought to be. Whether it's in our lifetime or at the final judgment, God will always deal properly with justice and righteousness. And he will vindicate all wrongdoing against his people. And then the third thing. God rewards faithfulness with eternal blessings. Faithful churches will be blessed. That doesn't necessarily mean numerically, but it could. And we ought to seek to, 
to be reaching people for Christ, but there are faithful men and faithful churches who are smaller than we are numerically. And God rewards faithfulness. And those blessings that God gives might be in this life, but our ultimate reward is eternal in heaven itself. All right? Any thoughts as we close this letter to Philadelphia? Yes? It's interesting how when God writes his name and marks us, the Antichrist comes around and tries to put his mark on his people too. Yes. In the end time there. So. Yeah, the mark of the beast. Right. The Antichrist. Yes, yeah, good. Anything else? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from your word. We know that there are still things that are hard to understand. And Lord, we pray that you would grow our understanding. Well, Lord, we know that you desire us to be faithful. We know that you honor that. And so we pray that we would follow you, follow your path, follow your word, to hold fast in the midst of whatever uh, difficulties may come our way. And Lord, whether we receive the blessing or rewards in this life or not, we look forward to that day of eternity when we will be with you in glory and have uh, be fully sanctified, be rid of sin. And Lord, may we look forward to that day. Lord, give us grace today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.